This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. As a guy who learned the hard way how important proper nutrition is on your health and the great harm excess weight can have on your health, I urge you to get serious about your health with SimpleToLose.com. Diets don't work, and you're really only going to be successful losing weight when you learn how to eat differently. And that is why the free health coaches at Simple to Lose are so helpful. They teach you how to eat six meals a day and why it works. Many people on my team are working with Simple to Lose and their health coaches. As a team, we've lost over 850 pounds. Mary has lost over 85 pounds and wants to live a long life to keep her family strong. Brad's lost 40 pounds, finally feels like he did when he was in his 30s. Chris, whose father died young due to obesity, has lost 100 pounds and is off most of his medications. Change your life, get healthy, and thrive today. Go to simpletolose.com today, not tomorrow. Go today, simpletolose.com. Results do vary. Typical weight loss is 2 to 5 pounds per week for the first two weeks, then 1 to 2 pounds per week thereafter. Will Kane, S.E. Cup, R. Kane and Cup, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Good Saturday morning to you. I am Will Kane. I'm S.E. Cup. I'm thrilled, thrilled to see you in a collared shirt and a blazer. <laughs> and I know why you're in a collared shirt and a blazer because you came here from doing television. Correct. You were on. You were on the MS. The Miz NBC, as Al Sharpton would, would call it. <laughs> that was a Saturday Night Live skit. It was yeah. absolutely great. <laughs> what so television good. network are you on? Miss NBC. <laughs> he also pronounced PBS pubis. Yes, right. <laughs> right. Can I tell you how true that sketch rings? For a long time, I was on MSNBC, and I would do hits with him, and he would every time call me CC Cup. <laughs> every time on the air. And CC Cup joining us today. <laughs> the funny thing, I you know, look, uh, any listener knows uh, uh, in our relationship, yours and mine, that is, and mine with you listening, I tend to mispronounce things from time to time. <laughs> mine usually happen with either a fifteen-second like moment of self-awareness where I'm like, I'm not going to get this word right, so speed through it very fast, <laughs> yeah, right? or mumble it, or. But what's funny about Sharpton's is. His mispronunciations are so well pronunciated. <laughs> now joining us is C C Cup. <laughs> yeah, he goes for it. Right. He goes hard. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, so um, you came from the the Ms. NBC. Yeah, uh, I mean, I am extremely overdressed for radio on a Saturday morning, and you're taking pleasure. Well, my in that. kudos, my thanks to Steve Kornacki <laughs> on 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 my behalf. Thanks for dressing up. Well, I'm excited about our radio show this morning. We have so many topics that you and I talk behind the scenes about the kind of things we want to discuss, Essie, and you yeah. know that I say I like bottomless topics, topics where you can go and chew and fall down a pit of debate where it's like it's like a good would you rather. There's no end to a good would you rather. Right. It just keeps going and going. The topics we have this morning. We've got a bunch of those. The morality of suicide, mm. whether or not there should be smoking bans in the military all lend themselves to this like there's no there's no easy pound your fist on the table solved solved conclusion thank you for listening we'll be back after the break (laughs) well yeah we don't solve anything here anyway (laughs) let's let's be honest we're not solving things but i'm excited to get into these topics and i actually hope uh we hear from you at home as well at 888-900-3393 we have many questions that i think you need to come in on we need to hear your opinion what i mean by need is 
as she just said, we're not offering you solutions. No, we're we, not we offering have none. you conclusions. We have none. You might offer them to us. But I, here's what I want to hear from. I am tonight, I, I leave here and I go back to D.C. And tonight, I'm going to the movies. I'm going to the cinema. All right. Uh, people tell you when you're pregnant, like, go to the movies now. Because you'll right. never be able to go to the movies. Okay, well, I'm going to the movies. Um, I'm going to see Gone Girl, which has got a lot of buzz. Mm-hmm. I did read the book. I'll tell you, it's not my traditional reading fair, but I went on like um, a vacation, a beach vacation, and it was a great beach read. And um, I'm excited to see it tonight. You always have an expectation, though, of a, a movie based on a book. Right. And, Almost always disappointments. Well, yeah, it's distracting for me because I'm more interested in is it playing to the book, like accurately, than I am, is this an interesting movie? Absolutely. Is this a well-done movie? Yeah, you're a critic who's poking holes throughout the entire thing when you've read the book. And you already know what's going to happen, and it's just a huge, huge distraction, <clears throat> I think, when you've read a book and then you go and see a movie, no matter what. And very few movies are as good as the books, ever. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I know I've walked out of a theater, at least on a handful of occasions, and said, I've said before, not only that's as good as the book, I know, I would suggest twice I've said, that's better than the book. Oh? Yeah, I can't think off the top of my head what, what? they are. All right, well, you'll, you have time, because I want to know. I think, I think maybe the best movie off of a book that I read, and this is not some, you know, we're not talking Citizen Kane here, but I thought Jurassic Park was really well done off of a well-done book. I didn't read the book. So I was Great capable. book. So in your, to your point, though, I was capable of just enjoying that movie yeah. and not seeing where it was falling short. I mean, you know, it was a Michael Crichton book. It was an awesome book. I mean, just a really cool read. And I thought they did a great job with casting and getting the book right and making it interesting also making you know mass appeal it's a real science heavy kind of book um i thought it was great probably one of my all-time favorite well uh while i think of mine trying to recall what i what i think of the best transitions uh, let's ask people at home as well i mean yeah what's the best transition what's the best book translation to movie what do you mean transition transgender (laughs) trans Transcendent? Phobic. Trans. What's the best translation of like a book to movie? Yeah. Maybe? Okay. Okay. Yep. What is the best? Yeah. What's the best movie you've seen off a book? I would love to know. And and we'll come up with a list as well throughout the show. Yeah. 888-900-3393. You call in. We'll put you on the air to tell us what that best translation. Translation. Transition is. Or tweet <laughs> us at Will Kane at S.E. Cup. But in a little more serious news, but I think importantly interesting. I don't know if somebody's ever been described that way, but importantly interesting. Not just purient, not just curious, not just that's fascinating, but an important moral debate has cropped up this week in the media, uh, in the national conversation. And it is over 29-year-old Brittany Maynard. Now, Brittany Maynard is a young lady from San Francisco, California, who on January 1st of this past year was diagnosed with brain cancer. Originally, her diagnosis gave her a window, they think, of anywhere from three to five to ten years to live. Three months later, four months later, in April of 2014, her diagnosis was upgraded. She uh, was given a few months to live. She, her brain cancer was much worse than they originally thought. And the anticipation was she would have under a year to live. <clears throat> And then, of course, there is, well, 
we can experiment. We can take experimental treatments. We can take risky treatments. We can try to expand that window. The possibility, the likelihood is very low. Well, Brittany decided two things. One, she wasn't going to go through those treatments. She wasn't going to spend what she figured to be her last few months going through radiation, um, declining, degrading her quality of life. She chose it to travel with her friends, with her parents, with her mother, with her husband. She was a newlywed of only a year. And she decided a second thing. She decided that on November 1st of 2014, some few weeks away from where we are right now, she would die. She moved to Oregon, a state with death-by-dignity laws that allows you to have a physician-assisted suicide. In this case, what Oregon allows is her to be prescribed a pill that will end her life. Brittany moved to Oregon, got that prescription, and reportedly carries this pill around with her right now. She has the pill, and she is elected to take it on November 1st. She's also elected to tell us all her story because she is advocating for other states to have similar laws to that of Oregon. There are five states, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Vermont, New Mexico, Montana. I'm incorrect. It's not Idaho. It's Montana. Have these death with dignity laws. But set aside the legal conversation of whether or not other states should have these laws. Um, I think the question that is most fascinating that has ignited public debate is the morality of this concept. Death by dignity. Suicide. Electing to end your own life. For whatever reason, and the reasons tend to be very important, is this a moral premise people can accept? That is a difficult question for many to answer. Yeah, it, I think it brings up a lot of a lot of issues. The first I think that you have to start with of course is theological implications because if if you're going to have this conversation on a theological level, I'm not on the plane. We're not starting from the same place, right? I'm I'm not a believer. Someone who would say the Bible condemns it or um it's it's un, unchristian, we're just not going to be able to argue over the same the same things. Um, although I'm pretty sure scripture says that the only irrecoverable sin is to not accept Christ. So there's redemption, I think, even for those who, um, who commit suicide. Can I address this, this theological divide you point to? I don't think there is as many, I think there are more commonalities than you think to probably where you would approach this philosophically and a believer's interpretation of this incident as well. And that is this. You would at least share this commonality, that you begin with the premise that life is valuable. Yeah. Life is, life is sacred. Life is Im- important to preserve at almost all costs, right. right? And you start from that premise that life is not to be destructed or be cavalier towards. Life is not to be thrown away. I think the philosophical divide, and I don't want to get too deep into philosophy 101, is this. Charles Cook was on Real News this week, and we began to – Charles Cook of National Review uh, joined us on our program, and he said, you know, you begin with this Lockean belief that you own your own life. Right. And therefore, that leads you down paths of what you can do with that life. Well, there is a Christian belief that that is not necessarily true, Mm -hmm. that God owns your life. Mm -hmm. God gave you this life. It is not yours to destroy and throw away. That might be the divide you're talking about where you don't – you're simply not speaking the same language. Right, right. And and so that's why I say – you know, if um, it's the same, it's the same situation I'm in when we talk about homosexuality. If we're going to have this debate, you know, um, gays are unchristian. We're 
you know, that, and that's your point of view. We're not arguing from the same place. We're just not going to, I'm not going to be able to convince you of my point, And that's fine. You can believe what you believe and I'll believe what I believe. I, I think putting, putting religion aside, which is hard for a lot of people to do. So I understand that. Putting that aside, I think, yeah, the philosophical argument for this is a libertarian one, which is that if you believe a person has the right to not wear a seatbelt, if you wear, believe a person has a right to smoke a cigarette, to eat a cheeseburger, um, to smoke weed, to drink themselves you know, into oblivion, then you have to believe also that a person has the right to end his or her own life. I think almost regardless of why. And when you use the term right, you're speaking to a moral right, not necessarily a legal right. I'm speaking of a moral right. Absolutely. A libertarian, Lockean, um, philosophical right to have domain over your own body and especially to wrest that domain from the state, which is which is the sort of the political sphere that this conversation also also straddles. Well, let's do this. Let's keep this going. Let's take a quick break. Uh, I'd love to involve you in the conversation. 888-900-3393. Um, I believe as well in this idea of agency, of ownership of your life. Um, but I also think we've been presented a false choice. And I'm going to explain that when we come back on Kane and Co. You're listening to Kane and Cop on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to Kane and Cop on the Blaze Radio Network. Lisa and Terry says a good uh, transition, in quotation marks, of <laughs> book to film is Essie Hinton's The Outsiders. Yes, I. You know, I have that on my list. It's mm, a good one. Ray Downs on Twitter says Train Spotting and Fight Club. I agree, Fight Club. Great. Uh, I didn't read that, but yeah. Great transition. Translation. Um, we've got a caller on it too. We do, Josh in Ohio. You with me, Josh? I don't know. I think somebody else is talking to Josh. I want to put Josh on the air. Hey, Josh. Get me, Josh. Quit talking to you guys. Here's a couple more that people are saying on Twitter. Um, I've got uh, the Left Behind series. Oh, uh, that just came out, by the way, right? Nicholas well, Cage just no, put wait. out a new version. No, but wait, yeah, a new version because the right. old version I think was Kirk Cameron. It, that's right. And yep. it was pretty. It was pretty good. I love those books. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. Those are great books. I cannot wait to see the Nick Cage version. Justin Bronchod on Twitter, American Psycho, Goodfellas, Schindler's List. There's some good. There's there's some good. Uh, American good Psycho suggestions is here. Do we have yeah. Josh now? Josh. Yes, I'm here. Hey man. Hello. What's the best book to movie transition? Uh, it's another Michael Crichton book, uh, Eaters of the Dead, oh. and it was moved over to the Thirteenth Warrior, starring Antonio Banderas. Oh, I, you know, I didn't read that book or see that movie, but I love, I love Michael Crichton. This is Michael Crichton's moment, right? I mean, you guys are trumping up his ability to have his books turned into screenplays, and the hot zone is essentially playing out on our national media. I mean, <laughs> he is the reason for the oh, yeah. Ebola I mean, panic. Almost any single Michael Crichton book that was moved to a uh, a movie has been pretty accurate to the book, and then... Uh, I mean, it's just always well put together. I mean, Let's hope that Jurassic Park doesn't come true. But seriously, the, the <laughs> movie, the 1995 movie with Dustin Hoffman, Outbreak, wasn't yeah. it an a- adaptation of The Hot Zone? Essentially. Yeah. 
Yeah. A loose tra- a loose translation. Craig okay. is great. All right. We'll keep Back that conversation to- going. What are the best book to movie translations? 888-900-3393. We'll put you on throughout the program to figure out what the best one is. But we are debating whether or not there can be a moral justification or is moral condemnation required for ending your own life the way Brittany Maynard, the 29-year-old cancer victim, has chosen to do in Oregon. Well, yeah, and I have I have three I think there are three places where you argue this conversation. You are you argue this this point. A, a religious point of view, a philosophical point of view, and then I I'll, I'll argue later a, a psychological point of view. But sticking in the realm, I've dismissed the religion point of view not because it's dismissible, but because I can't I can't play in that space. I I'm, I'm not a believer. But let's stick in the philosophical point of view for just a minute because that has political implications. And I think that's really that's really meaty. What is the alternative to me deciding when I end my life? The alternative is you deciding. And frankly, that to me is statist and offends both my politics and my morality. So if I'm not in charge and that means that you're in charge... I don't understand why anyone would argue that someone else has domain over here's the pushback what I, would, I do. Well, here's the pushback I would give for you on that. I think that's a legal analysis. I think that's a political analysis because I don't think anybody's debating whether or not they should dictate to you what you should do. It's whether or not they can morally accept, whether or not they can morally condemn, or whether or not they can morally champion your choice. Right? right. Someone could say to you, your choice is very, very wrong. What you have chosen to do is very wrong, but I'm not going to stop you from doing it. No, but but I agree. It is it is a legal question and a political question, but it is also a moral question. And that's and that's what I'm saying. But it's also a moral question because if I don't have domain over my body and what happens to it and my life, who does? Well, but just because that must you have mean domain over someone else does. No, that's not true. And uh, that's offensive to my morality. Now, as William F. Buckley used to talk about when it comes to drugs, just because we allow you, because we think it's a moral priority for you to decide what to do with your own body, that doesn't mean we sanction all the choices you make. Should you choose to put cocaine in your body? I'm not, and a, heroin uh, body? but I don't need anyone to sanction it. Well, but I would say is we can morally condemn your choices while also uh, elevating your ability to choose them. You can morally condemn my choice while accepting it. Yeah. However, I don't know how you can morally justify someone else. It's the same argument I would make for capital punishment. How do you morally justify someone else taking someone else's life? How do you morally justify someone else stopping me from doing what I want with my body? Well, I think this is interesting. Um, many people – it's it, the way many people are approaching this, SC, and, and Matt Walsh wrote a column on theblaze.com. Yeah, Matt Walsh is a new this. blogger for um yeah. for the Blaze. Very interesting guy. Excited um, to have him. He I totally disagreed with his column on this particular. Yes, issue. I did. Yeah, Matt talked about the people on Facebook and in comment sections suggesting that Brittany Maynard's uh, decision to end her life is brave, right? And you have people, I suppose, on Facebook or uh, bottom of articles on abcnews.com or something saying, "Wow, so brave, Brittany. Wow, we're proud of you, Brittany." Here's the thing about. Matt's yeah he has an argument with those people yeah and that's the false choice I (laughs) I talked about before the break you I don't think we are required to choose between whether or not Brittany Maynard's decision to end her life is brave or whether or not we should condemn it I don't think those are the two available choices pick your battle right I I reject that 
I, 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 Matt, by extension, said, well, if Britney's choice is brave, then is the person who chooses to fight cancer, is that a cowardly decision? She says she's she's dying with dignity, which means dying of cancer is not dignified. You're accusing people who die of cancer of having no dignity. That's what you're saying. Own it. Confront it. Take responsibility for the words you use. Yes, that's incorrect. Totally incorrect. The choices are not between bravery and cowardice, and the choices are not between dignity and undignified. By someone suggesting Britney's choice is dignified. It's not saying that someone who chooses to fight cancer is, is undignified. undignified. Right. That, that that is an inherently subjective concept and one you apply to your right. own life. How what how do you envision a dignified life for yourself? Well, yeah. There's more on this. Let's keep this conversation going yeah, we've because got we've got calls. some calls. Yeah. Uh, join us in the conversation 888-900-3393 when we come back on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Kane and Cup. Phone lines are lit up on whether or not we can morally condemn or celebrate someone's decision to end their own life. But No, but that's the point I want to make. Yeah, yeah, no well, one well, is before, celebrating. Before you get to your point, I just want to say the phones are lit up and right before you say to me, can, can I just make one more point? Well, because that I I, I I want I don't want people calling in or listening to get the impression that we are actually having a debate over whether you can celebrate suicide or must condemn suicide. That's, no one is celebrating suicide. That's right. That's at least right. no one in this room. That's right. And so I think I, I'd rather I'd rather say that at the outset. But many are condemning it, and I think that's the place where we start in this debate. Right. Well, that's an in, that's an interesting debate to have. But no one here is celebrating suicide, even if I think that she has the right to do it. Right. And even if I think that it's not morally condemnable. That it's not morally condemnable. Underlined, highlighted, noted. Okay. No one here is celebrating. Move along. All right, Eric. Eric on line three. What do you say, Eric? Um, well, so, hey, guys. How you doing today? Good, Good thanks. thanks. So, um, I'm your suit guy from Utah. I called in a few weeks ago. Okay. Right. And, Great. Uh, sorry, Will. <laughs> anyway, so... Um, no, Eric, you made my life. Through. You made my life when you called in to tell Will... Oh, this is the guy that told me that any undershirt, no matter what color, any T-shirt, solid in nature, no matter what color, is an undershirt? That's yeah, you, Eric. That's okay. He works in a men's shop. You're starting in. You're starting in negative territory. Eric. I run Let's a men's shop. Climb. Actually, he Let's, runs anyway. a men's shop. Even a bigger expert. All right, climb out of your hole, Eric. Here, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I mean, the whole the whole bottom line of this whole thing is it's it's her personal responsibility. Um, it's it's it is her body. It is her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and she can technically do whatever she wants with it. Okay. Now, whether or not it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do is sort of a moot point. Does she is she able to do it? Yes. Um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a deeply religious guy, and so you know, I can give you multiple reasons why religiously it is completely wrong to take your own life. Mm-hmm. But we're going to f- sort of forego that. But life is a finite resource; you mm-hmm. only have so much of it. Yeah, but I, I hear now, your position, Eric. And basically, I feel like you're taking the position that it is for whatever 
moral foundation or philosophical basis you're coming from, it's a condemnable decision to take your own life, no matter the circumstances. Well, I think the saddest thing is she's lost hope. But, but no, if you read, I mean, if you listen to her, though, Eric, there. she she actually describes a real sense of relief having um, been given this option. She now is, I wouldn't call her hopeful, but she has a, a huge sense of relief over having some autonomy over when this happens to her, how this happens to her, what she puts her family through, what she puts her body through. To me, I mean, it's it it makes me feel better for her. I mean, I just see it differently. I feel that you know, beating this would be better because I know people who have been given you know six, ten months to live and have lived for ten, fifteen years. You were given six to ten That's months to live. The doctor says no. He oh, knows not people. Me. I have oh. friends who were okay. I have a friend who was anyway. Just because a doctor says you only have so long to live doesn't mean you do. Well, this is the miracle argument, and and I believe me, it's a it's a compelling one. What if, what if something miraculous happens? Right. And that's that's you know I guess depends on Brittany's belief, you know, in miracles. Right. Um, when you're you're told by doctors this is going to kill you, and all of the evidence is that this has killed people before. I don't know. Maybe you don't. You don't really believe in miracles so much. Well, thanks for the call, Eric. Devin in Texas, actually, uh, you're making, I think, the same point, that you're you're taking the potential for miracles off the table. Well, my standpoint is more of a choice factor because I do believe everyone has a right. I'm agreeing with uh, Ms. Cup on that. But I also feel like she's giving what what Ms. Cup said earlier about um, if you're not, if it's not your choice, it'll be someone else's choice. Mm. And basically, she's giving the doctor the choice because the doctor, she's giving the doctor all of the control in saying, well, you know, you have this amount of time to live. And so she's taking from that and ending her own life. Hmm. And at that point, it makes me feel like, you know, like many other people that are given that, given that uh, diagnosis, hey, this doctor is basically God and he knows when I'm hmm. going to die. And so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. But on the same token, if she's dead set on ending her life, Regardless if she has the right by law to do it, she's going to do it. Well, I, it's many a couple ways points. to end her life other than couple points. Brittany says she's mm. not suicidal. She doesn't want to end her own life. She doesn't want to die. She said, if I if I were suicidal, I would have already taken this pill. Mm. I have the ability right now. It's in my possession. I want to live, but I'm choosing this type of death over the other, which leads me to your first point, which is, is death a certainty? I don't think that's – I honestly think that's bad logic to say she's given control to the doctor. She still has the control. The ultimate decision is hers. She will place the pill in her mouth or she will not place the pill in her mouth. The doctor gave her information. Now, the question will not to trust the information has some validity because I don't think doctors ever, and I've dealt with doctors on serious situations, speak in terms of certainty. They speak in terms of likelihood. And probabilities, yeah. You will probably not survive this beyond X amount of period of time. Now, I think from that point on, you're dealing with a risk-reward, cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, but that's Devin's point. I think she's right that, you know, we we do have a tendency to trust doctors implicitly. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't have to just be in life-and-death situations. We trust them all the time, whether or not to vaccinate our kids or whether or not to – I mean, we we make decisions all the time based on this science, this godlike science. And Actually, we're going to talk about science as a religion later in the show – and I think it's it's a good idea to rest that control 
away from doctors and and occasionally remember that you have autonomy over your decision. And I and I think actually that's what that's what Brittany's doing. Let me just raise another another part of this, which to me is the psychological aspect. I think if you've had any experience with depression, and I, I don't know that you can really equate depression to being told you're uh, you're going to die, but but if we're talking about suicide. If you've had any experience with depression and suicidal thoughts, let me just speak from experience and tell you, having suicide as an option is actually motivating. Let me explain that. It, it, it's it's helpful to be able to say to yourself, okay, this situation I'm in right now is terrible. I don't even want to get out of bed. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to confront it. It's scary. All of these bad things could happen. I've got anxiety. It's stressful. I just want it all to go away. Okay, I'm going to get up. I'm going to face the day. I'm going to face this. Because you know what? At least I have an option. If it gets too terrible, I have an out. Now, I'm not suggesting that's a healthy way to approach problems. And I would suggest anyone who is depressed or con- contemplating suicide to get to get help um, and find coping mechanisms to deal with stress and anxiety of those situations. But being a free person and having that option to end your life if things get too terrible is psychologically reassuring. Hmm. And I imagine for Brittany, having that option, as she says, has been a relief to know that, okay... My body is not, I'm not going to be in tremendous pain. My parents aren't going to watch my body deteriorate. Having that option is a reassurance and a comfort that every person has the right to, whether or not they use it. Yeah, I don't know, uh, honestly, about what you just said. Um, also having personal experience with this debate that we're having right now, and more, more than I'm comfortable sharing or want to share right now, I just don't know. Um, I think in the end, my opinion on this, and I want to go on this just a little bit longer, is how can you ever know? It's subjective for every single person. It's the situation, the context, the circumstances for every single individual person is so different. It's impossible, in my estimation. It is damn near impossible to pass moral judgment. Mm. But l- l- let's take a quick break. I have some more calls that I'm re- looking here, Essie. This yeah. Interesting things I want to get to. 888-900-3393. Let's keep on this debate on the moral the moral calculus of taking your own life. When we come back on Kane and Cup. Will Kane and Desi Cup. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. And Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Kane and Cup. I'm Will Kane along with SE Cup. 29 year old Brittany Maynard has chosen to end her own life on November 1st of this year in response to her terminal cancer diagnosis. What should be our moral judgment of that decision mm. of hers? Bill in Maryland, what do you think? Hey, I Bill. think she's a cop out. Mm. She's a coward. Hmm. She would have never made it in the Marine Corps. Oh, all right. Well, she well, can no, take that off her list of no, things no, no, to do wait, then. I, I, I'm going to push back on you then, Bill. 
Um, I assume you're suggesting she's a coward because she's chosen to take her own life. That's your conclusion, yes? Definitely. I'll put it to you this way. If I listened to the doctors eight times, I've already would have been dead and buried. Okay, separate argument on whether or not... Separate argument on whether or not you trust your doctors, but the, the, the conclusion that Brittany is a coward that you made and she wouldn't have made it in the Marine Corps. Military and warrior culture has a long history of people taking their own life when the end appears to be inevitable. Whether or not that's battlefield wounded, uh, your gut spilling out and carrying a bullet for yourself, or modern-day warriors carrying a bullet because they won't let themselves fall into the hands of radicals who would chop their head off, the idea of ending your own life is certainly not verboten when it comes to the military. Well, that is true, but they taught us in the Marine Corps, if you're checking out, you take a dozen of them with you at the same time. Well, yeah, but that's... But, she's but she's not in the military. Yeah, she's not, but so, but and it's all, almost irrelevant whether she, whether she could be a Marine or not. This is her life situation. And you can judge her for being cowardly. I think you have the right to call her a coward. But I think you have to be consistent. If you're going to say someone's a coward, then you have to look at these other instances and say that's cowardly as well. And if you're not willing to, then you have to say why. Hmm. Well, I look at it this way. You know, the doctors have told me eight different times that I was dying of this and dying of that, and there's no way around it. Well, I didn't give up. Right, Bill, but that's, like Will said, that's a separate argument, whether or not you believe the doctors. And I I think you're right. If, if, you know, if she were holding out for a miracle, then that would be a separate argument, and you'd be right. I think that is a separate argument. I think there's the miracle, trust the doctors argument, and I think there is the coward argument. I want to say this, Essie, because I brought up the concept of the battlefield wounded. You know, now we're talking about samurai warriors Mm. or modern-day guys in Afghanistan. That's not unheard of. That's not, you know, something that the military says— is is condemnable that mm-hmm. situation. Right. Here's another one. That's if a good you point. if you start with the premise that life is valuable, and I do, mm-hmm. um, and that you should fight for every second, and you say Brittany is violating that principle, you also have to ask yourself how you feel about hospice. Hospice is a situation where somebody says they have taken the route of comfort over the continuation of the fight. A fight they have either said is lost, sure, or a fight they said isn't worth the cost anymore. They say, I'm not going to take the chemotherapy for another week to live. I'm plenty going of people to, make that decision. Plenty of people make that decision. I'm going to rest now. I am going to let this sure. go. And if you say, well, you, you know, life is valuable and you've stopped fighting, you need to condemn that as well, in addition to Britney's choice. I need, I need yeah. to hear why you can distinguish those two well, I just things. think it's so arrogant to judge another person's choices at at the end of his or her life anyway. And, and that's my conclusion in this. I, I don't think Britney is brave. I think the person that fights cancer is just as brave as Britney. Me They're too. both brave. But I, I understand where her head. Yeah. I understand where she's at. And I also don't think Britney's choice is necessarily more dignified. I think the person that chooses to fight cancer can also have dignity. Die dig- dignified in a dignified These way. These are things for them to d- dictate, exactly. for them to define. Britney can define dignity and bravery on her, her terms, mm-hmm. and so can the person that chooses the opposite. And I am, while I see right and wrong very clearly, I feel like on most issues, I don't on this. I will, I will abdicate that judgment to the person making the decision. I, I agree. I think, I think autonomy over one's, one's self, one's, one's body, one's future, I think that is the morally, I think that is the, the morally preferential. Uh, position okay, and so qu- I'm I'm giving her that autonomy. Let's take two quick calls. Um, Gene in Ohio. Good morning. Good morning, Gene. Um, this is, this is not my personal view, but I have a question. Um, my personal view is you should not take your life. Uh, 
scripturally, and I'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. But if if you believe and you're of the mind that it, uh, it is your choice to do, to take your life or not, why are we wasting millions and a year and billions over the years on all these hospitals and doctors and medications. You want to kill yourself? Go ahead. Why are we wasting our time and our money? Well, uh, yeah, the question of, of, of palliative care, which is expensive. And again, that is the state making decisions over, over your life, I think is a good one. And that would be the legal justification for a lot of these folks advocating for right to die laws in more than just five states so that if you have decided I'm at the end of my rope, I don't want to live another 10 years in pain or in hospice or with my family having to take care of me and, uh, you know, paying for all of that, then that's the decision I'd like to make. That is the legal, the legal and political argument that's happening right now. Well, I think you and I had arrived at the same place in the end, Essie, and that is just I'm very uncomfortable making either a moral celebration or a moral condemnation of someone else's choice in this. The moral angle to this. Mm-hmm. I think both you and I and most of the callers agree that legally, I'm not saying all the callers, but many of the callers agree, legally this should be a choice for the individual to make. I would hope so. You know? I would hope so. Well, there's still only five states that allow people to make this choice. I know. There's a, there's an, an HBO documentary, I think, called Death in Oregon, Dying in Oregon, that's a really provocative watch if anyone's interested in more on this topic. All right. We are still asking you what the best movie translation from a book is. Is you know I, got, I have another one. I got one on Twitter. Stand by me. That's good. So good. Roy Puba says Shawshank Redemption. Oh, another good one. Is being a mom does that qualify you for office? When we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup. Part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network. We found him. We got dibs. <sighs> Better start running, eyeball. They got dibs. There's four of us, eyeball. You just make your move. You're dead. Nice. Stand by me. Yeah, that's one of the, the listeners' suggestions. Stand by me. What's the best book to movie translation? You're going to see Gone Girl. Gone Girl, a little late this afternoon. I read the book. Going to see the movie. We'll see how it holds up. But there's so many, there's so, there's so few books that were made into good movies that I think it's easy to identify the good ones. Do you know what I mean? Like everyone can stand by me. Great. Doug in Tampa, you've got a good suggestion. Yeah, The Hunt for Red October. I read the book first and then saw the movie. And I thought they did an excellent job on that. I agree. That is a great movie. I I, I can't stand the man's politics, but Alec Baldwin was the best Jack Ryan. Can we agree? Yes. That's right. Yes. He was better, clearly, than Harrison Ford. Uh, Better than Ben Affleck. Yeah. Please. Please. (laughs) Although I do love Some of All Fears. That's a great great movie. Um, And then there was another one, Chris Pine, right? I don't know. Chris Pine was a Jack Ryan in the last one. That was awful. Whatever that last Jack Ryan movie was, I'm, it was awful. I missed that one. Oh, good. Well, you didn't miss anything, Doug. <laughs> Thanks, you didn't Doug. miss anything. Hunt Thanks. For October. <laughs> um, I got one, Essie. I told you I'd think about it throughout the show. No Country for Old Men. Oh, okay. Oh, 
<laughs> I didn't read that book. Thank you for that. Who wrote that? Support. Cormac McCarthy. Oh, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, I've heard of him. <laughs> I've heard of that person. All the Pretty Horses, The Road. Barf, barf, barf. These are books first. Yeah. Okay. Those those are not for me. Those are not for me. I, I did like No Country for Old Men because I love Tommy Lee Jones in anything. Right. Um, but that's not a book I would have I would have read. Uh I'm I'm excited to see Gone Girl tonight. I'll let you know. I'll let you know how it is. Now um I want to switch gears for a second. I uh I've got a quick pregnancy story that I need to tell you about. I took a class this week, a baby class. It's an infant care class. I'm not taking any more. Let's put it that way. But I took a class. And basically, I just want you I just want you to be aware and and the listeners out there, one of my principles, my abiding principles was completely validated in this class. Was it Lamaze? No. It was an infant care class and it was fine. But basically the the nurse teaching this class told me people are going to approach you all the time when you have this baby. You know how I hate when people approach me now. Yeah. Not not because uh, whatever I'm on television, but I just <laughs> not because of that, just because I don't like friendly people. Right. Like people who are just neighborly. I don't like it. Mm. Stay away from me. I just want to live in my own cocoon. Anyway, she told me, you know, people are going to approach you all the time when you have a baby because people want to talk to your baby. They want to look at your baby and touch your baby. Don't let them. She said, don't let them. Ebola? No, she said, she said, here's how you get people to not approach your baby. Oh, the baby's really sick. The baby's really sick. Stay away. And then people won't, 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 which I'm going to use all the time anyway. Just for every situation. My baby's sick. Don't come and talk to me. <laughs> it totally validated my life experience. Yeah, until the kid's like six and he's like, apparently something's wrong with me. I'm sick all <laughs> I'm the sick time. I'm sick all the time. It must be contagious too. <laughs> you're like, you're, you're raising the virtual bubble boy. Like the psychological yeah. bubble boy. Yeah. All because, all because I don't like people. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm not a good, I'm not, I'm not a good person. Um, but you know who is a good person? Terry Lindland, she's running for Senate in, in Michigan. Well, there's there's more than one transition because she's actually being attacked by Democrats for talking about the fact that she's a mom and approaching a lot of legislative issues and policy issues from the perspective of being a mom. Um, to me, that would seem pretty relatable because every single person in this country either is a mom or had a mom. Okay. I mean, you know, th- that's... That's a, that's a large group of people. It's a relatable thing. Big constituency. Moms. It's a big constituency. <laughs> people who know moms. It's a big constituency. And it just seems um, so anathema to the Democrats' war, you know, anti-war on women campaign to go after a woman who seems proud of being a mom. Well, let's have Terry on to uh, to talk about this. Terry, thanks for joining us. Talk about talk about you 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 gave an interview. And you talked about being a mom in this interview vis-a-vis a number of policy issues. And, and what happened? Well, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, yeah, I was on uh, public radio the other day. And we were talking about different issues, everything from the health issues of Ebola to uh, uh, what's going on uh, across the sea and how, you know, it affects being a mom. I have two kids. And uh, when you think about issues that uh, about uh, foreign policy and uh, uh, whether or not uh, we get involved with uh, uh, issues across the sea, it's, it's very important um, to, to put that into perspective because um, when you have two kids, you, you think about that for the future. And uh, so talking about that really uh, 
uh, is important and we need more women in the Senate who think that way. Yeah. And, and Democrats took to Twitter, not just like random Twitter people, but Democrats representing various uh, Democratic groups and, and campaigns and said things like, how many times are you going to mention that you're a mom or children exist in other countries, too? Does that make I'm a mom an appropriate answer for foreign policy strategy? And uh Hey, being a mom is not a qualification to be a U.S. senator. Do you have anything besides talking points? I mean, this is the kind of stuff you got in response to talking about politics as a real person, as it really applies to your life from Democrats. Oh, exactly. And, you know, you're talking about immigration and the fact that these children are coming across the border. And and I said, my heart goes out to their parents and to these kids Uh, I can't even imagine uh, sending your child, you know, away and, and across to, to a foreign land and not being there for them. And, mm. and I said, you know, we really need to get these children back. I mean, the president needs to lead on this issue. He needs to let the world know you can't come here illegally. And uh, we need to get these children through the process and the system. And, mm-hmm. you know, if they're refugees, then we need to deal with that. But, uh, you know, if they're not, we need to get them back to their parents and get them back home. Hey, Terry, this is Will Kane. I do think there is an interesting question here, though. Certainly mentioning that your mom makes you relatable, and it's revealing a part of yourself to the public, to the electorate, to let them know who you are, who they're potentially voting for. But is being a mom, is that a qualifying factor for holding office? Well, you know, it's part of it. Um, You know, that gives uh, you one perspective, um, and I think that's important in the Senate – uh, we need to have a few more moms who are thinking about those things. You know, Senator uh, Deb Fisher and Kelly Ayotte are coming into Michigan, and uh, Senator Ayotte was on with me the other day, and we were talking about, you know, those issues, and, and they're there, and they have kids, and uh, they have a perspective, and I think we need different perspectives. I'm also a former elected official. I was the Secretary of State, so I have government experience. Oh, certainly, cer- certainly, certainly. You have more than, right. I mean, anybody attempt to stop the argument like you're trying to win is specifically on that, that factor alone. That would be that would be irresponsible. But I, I, ha- I have to push. So is it by correlation then, logically, if you're not a mom, are you less qualified? No. Um, you know, we need dads too, and uh, those are all important involved in this too. But Everyone has, you know, comes with a different background, and that's how it affects how they look at different policy issues, whether it's, you know, sending troops across the seas or whether it's the immigration issue or whether it's a health issue, um, you know, and whether it's the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you know, moms are the ones that the uh, majority of them take their kids to the doctor, um, deal with uh, aging parents, and have to uh, make sure they get the health care they need and, and all of that. And uh, so that's why it's important to, uh, you know, have that perspective. When I was... Secretary of State, for example, we created a system for women to learn the skills to be managers um, because I noticed that a lot of women weren't applying for management jobs, um, and that's because they had family um, responsibilities. Mm-hmm. But as their kids grew up and grew older, um, they didn't apply for the management jobs because they didn't have the skills. So during the time that they were there, uh, we had a lead worker program uh, where they could learn those skills. So when it was time for them to have some more flexibility in their family life, they could apply for management jobs get that higher-paying job and have that experience. So by the time I left the Secretary of State's office, we actually had more women managers than when I started. Yeah, I just think it's bizarre, Terry, 
But not surprising. I mean, this is what Democrats do. They look at someone like Mitt Romney and they take one of his greatest qualifications that he was a businessman and try to make that a dirty thing. And and for you to say, well, here's here's a great qualification of mine. I'm a mom. I'm approaching these issues as you would, as a caring parent would. Um, And Democrats are going to turn that around and dismiss that and say enough already with the being a mom. You know, it's funny. A a person in politics, in in media and politics once told me she was running for office and a very well-known now senator, U.S. senator, a woman, was helping her out and told her, you know, talk less about your kids. It makes you look unqualified. Hmm. And they were Democrats. Both of these two women were Democrats. And she was astounded, astounded and aghast that another successful woman, Democrat, would tell her to downplay the fact that she's a mother. And then you look at the war on women, Terry, and you think, how transparent can you get? It just they can't reconcile this anymore. Right. There's no there's no doubt about it. And uh um, it, it's really been something, you know, the other thing, too, is they talk about, um, you know, in the workplace and flexibility and equal pay and mm-hmm. I support equal pay and flexibility. And, you know, my opponent, Congressman Peters, actually pays his staffers 67 cents on the dollar compared to the men in his own office. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they don't even practice what they preach. It, it's just not realistic. Well, good luck in the race, Terry. And uh, I hope you keep talking about being a mom, because I certainly think that it's um, it's an attribute and something to be proud of. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. today. Yeah, thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks. So apparently there are people out there who like, you know, people talking, talking to them and talking to them about being moms. And that's just not me. Oh, you mean there are people out there (laughs) or normal, maybe in some listening who like people yeah, it's so weird like they look around the room right now they're sitting in their living room on saturday morning and reading the paper or surfing the internet and look at people the, the human being on the other side of the room and go i like that person no, no. well i like my people oh, I, right, mean, I forget that. i like right. my people i like my friend my family right. um and you know occasionally i meet people that i like occasionally occasionally but but i um yeah you know me i run from neighbors i run from strangers on the street um, and now my nurse tells me it's okay to do that. <laughs> I'm going to see if I can make you dislike me in the next break. Um, you and I disagree. Easy. Easy. <laughs> what do you mean? That already happened. We disagree. We disagree on smoking. We disagree on smoking in the military. Let's get into that when we come back on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio, Kane and Cup is on. The census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Those Silence of the Lambs. That's another great, great book to movie adaptation. Anthony Hopkins. Really, really good. I thought of another one. What's that? Um... Charlotte's Web. I don't know. I'm sorry. That's a classic. E.B. White. Um. That's a classic. What? A, that's that's a that's a great one. Also, I liked um I liked 
the Robert Redford, Mia Farrow version of Great Gatsby. One of my all-time favorite books. I thought that was a really good movie well, As long as we're going back in time, I'll tell you, the, there is... There, back in time to the late 70s. <laughs> there is an answer to this question of what's the best book-to-movie translation. There's an answer? Yeah. You have definitively? I thought we don't solve problems on this show. As I am want to do from time to time. <laughs> okay. I'll give you the right answer. <laughs> it is based on a book by Larry McMurtry. Never heard of him. <laughs> it's embarrassing for you. It is... What one would say, a teleplay, not a screenplay. The answer is Lonesome Dove. Uh, Lonesome Dove is 10 to 12 hours of pure greatness that if you have not, you need to devote a rainy Saturday to watching. Can I just tell you how out of touch Will Kane is? Will Kane told me that while on my maternity leave, what I should watch is Lonesome Dove. We are out of touch. I have friends who have named what? their children Gus and Call. Based upon these two characters. I don't know what Tommy that means. Lee Jones plays Captain, uh, Captain, uh, what's his first name? Call. His last okay. name is Call. And Robert Duvall plays Augustus McRae. He's the greatest character of all time. I literally, seriously have friends who have named their children Gus and Call. I think that says more about you than it does about the general population. This is the greatest movie of all time. I moved to Montana because of this movie. You could actually see me, me. SE Cup on my maternity leave watching Lonesome Dove? Yeah, you like Western culture, Western what? stuff. This is a Western. It's the quintessential Western. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you know, Anthony Hopkins talking about drinking Chianti. Um, Chianti. He pronounces things like you do. Yeah. And Al Sharpton. <laughs> this is a nice little threesome. Me, Anthony Hopkins, and Al Sharpton hanging out one night. <laughs> Priest, rabbi, and something else walk into a bar. Yeah, that's a that's immense. Will Kane, Al Sharpton, Anthony Hopkins walk into a bar. And then they have a debate, and here's the debate, and I present it to you. How much do Americans drink? Is the amount that you drink normal? Oh. Yeah. You have answers? I have answers. I have you a study have by a Duke University economist who apparently has plied this field. Now think about it. Just sit back for a moment on your couch or in your car. For a How many drinks do you have a week? That is, mm. alcoholic beverages do you consume a week? Mm. And I'm going to tell you, are you normal? Okay. Okay, so people need to come up with a number. Right, I've got your number. Can I do mine like before I was pregnant? I want to hear, and since you're in studio with me, I want to hear how many do you drink a week? How many do you take? Yeah, before you're pregnant. Because now it's, it's, it's a lot less. <laughs> That's good to hear. That's good to hear. No, um, now I've, I haven't had a drink since I was pregnant. Um, and I miss it. But before I was pregnant, I would say 10 to 15. 10 to 15 drinks a week? Yep. Jose, how many drinks a week do you have? Surprisingly, zero. Zero drinks a week surprised. for Jose. That's okay. Anybody else in there with you, Jose? You're all alone. Uh, Reggie's outside. Can, I can have him come in. I want to know how many drinks a week you yeah. have, Reggie. Um, I have. I have. I think I am in that. Uh, Just say your number. Well, 10. 10. Yeah, because you'll have like a beer, a beer after work. Yeah, like I would have a glass of wine or two yeah. after work, and right. then uh, and then on a weekend night or two, I'll have like a couple you know, more, a couple more than that. Right, a couple <laughs> more than that. Right, and right. Reggie, Reggie, how many drinks a week do you have? Actually, it's kind of calmed down this year. I'd probably say maybe less than two a week. Less than two? Wow. Are these people younger than us? Yes. That is shocking. All right, let me tell you where you are. Let me tell you where. Now, these, I never heard of deciles before, but deciles, those are like quintiles or... Uh, Science. Yeah, it's it's breaking the American population up into groups of 10, right? Are you in the bottom 
top 10%, what have you. Jose, you are kind of normal when you said zero drinks a week. 30% of Americans don't have a single drink a week. And if I increase that to 40%, it drops down to 0.02 drinks a week, which I don't even know what that means. I like taking a sip a week. Um, Yeah, that's like mouthwash. (laughs) (laughs) I use mouthwash. You swallow some mouthwash. 50% of Americans still have less than a drink. 60% actually have less than one drink a week. All right, now we get into real numbers. In the 60 to 70% range, you have two drinks a week. In the eighth decile, that's six drinks a week. Okay. Okay. Only ten percent, twenty percent of Americans have more than fifteen drinks a week. So you and I are somewhere between that. Between ten and twenty. Yeah, roughly. We'll say twenty-five percent of Americans have about the, wow. the number of drinks we do. So, <laughs> wow. I said, as I said, twenty percent of Americans have fifteen drinks a week, which we're just doing the math. I mean, that's like a little more than two drinks a night. Huh. But then there's a jump. Oh. Then there's a big jump. Okay. 10% of Americans have more than 74 drinks a week. What? Yeah. So it goes from a casual drinker at the 20% range of having a couple drinks a week, 15 or so, to the hardcore 70, drinker. I can't even do the math on how, which is not surprising, on how many drinks a night that would be. A little over 10. There's seven days in a week. Not Holy hard, Not hard math, by the moly. way. Holy <laughs> Holy moly, that's a lot of drinks. Yeah, so 50% of Americans don't drink at all, and 10% of Americans... Drink a whole bunch. Yeah, that is shocking. I'm shocked at both of those numbers. I'm shocked that half the country doesn't drink at all. But maybe, I mean, does that, is that, is that children? <laughs> I don't know. It's good. You know, I mean, hey, maybe, maybe the poll would be different if it started at 21 and over. It's nice that you quit drinking during your pregnancy. Did you quit did, did, wait, smoking? Oh, yeah, of course. I don't do, I don't do anything terrible for my child now. Let's talk about smoking when we come back. Okay. Should you be allowed to buy cigarettes on military bases if you're in the military when we come back on Cane and Cup? Big disagreement. <laughs> you're listening to Cane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Eight eight nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Came and Cup returns now. Well, can I just tell you, I am so excited for the eleven o'clock hour of the show because I have a professor coming on who's going to tell me why I'm actually better at math than I think I am. <laughs> the one who couldn't figure out how many drinks a night, seventy drinks a week, is <laughs> five minutes ago. <laughs> I'm, that is difficult. I'm not going to try to sort that out per night. But 70 <laughs> drinks a week is a lot. A lot. Well, your conclusion is correct, man. I don't I don't pretend to be good at math. I'm not. Right. But this professor is teaching a class for people who think they're bad at math and think they hate math. Mm-hmm. And he promises he can make anyone love math and good at math. He's here to save my soul, essentially. Well, consider it teased. I am excited. I am so, so excited. In about 35 minutes, we're going to see if somebody can pull a miracle. (laughs) Make you good at math. Live on the air. Live on the air at the top of 11 o'clock. 
I feel like it's like going to a revival. Like we're going to witness a miracle. <laughs> like you're going to see me cured. I'm going to walk here in this studio. <laughs> exactly. I'm excited. Here's the great thing about if somebody was actually going to make a SE where she unable to walk, walk. You'd never know because you can't see it. <laughs> because it's radio. But when it comes to math, we're going to find out. <laughs> it's radio. She's going to do a problem on this radio airwaves. I'm excited. Uh, but before we get to that, you, you and I have a have a disagreement. We discovered we have a disagreement on Real News this week mm-hmm. when we brought up this news story that uh, Democrats and some military uh, bureaucrats are trying to ban smoking and the sale of tobacco products on military installations. Mm-hmm. Because just as we're sending our troops into harm's way to fight ISIS, this is the exact right time, I think. To tell them, but would you please put that cigarette out first? I, uh, I, I find this galling on a number of levels. One, um, recognize the place and time that we're operating in. This is not peacetime. This is uh, a, a pretty stressful time for most of our men and women in, in uniform. Uh, we're asking a lot of them. And I think this is probably not the right time to curb their freedoms. Number two, it's galling considering that the VA has not been able to deliver basic health care, something that our men and women in uniform have been begging for and deserve. And yet now the government, the federal government, thinks this is a good time to inject themselves where they're not wanted to provide a health service. Um, And finally... These are grown men and women who should be able to decide, make adult decisions on their own about whether or not they can use a legal substance. They're fighting for our freedoms. Let's cut them a break. Let's cut them a break. Go ahead. Go ahead and smoke. Because to me, this is just ridiculous. And I don't know on what basis you can defend this government intervention. Yeah. In our military's freedom wow. on such a base level. Wow. Let me concede already. You're getting already. aggressive with me. Like, like you're already. Because like... I'm offended by this. And let me concede already. Smoking's bad for you. Yeah. So is dying in war. Yeah. Right. What do you, you want to take, take their guns away next? No, I'm, <laughs> I'm waiting. No guns on military base. Oh, that already happens. Hmm. Before I give my rebuttal, do you want to say galling one more time? I am galled. I am galled and appalled. Yeah, That means real mad. I am. Look, and I get offended more easily than you do and outraged more easily than you do. But this is offensive. Duncan Hunter, uh, California congressman, is introducing an amendment in the defense authorization bill that would block the, the, the Department of Defense from doing this. Yeah. From banning tobacco sales. Because he, as someone who also was in the service, right. is galled. Right. <laughs> galled. <laughs> Duncan Hunter said they're out there fighting for our freedoms, and you're taking away theirs. Yeah. You ready? Give it to me. <laughs> Go ahead. Defend defend government bureaucrats on this. The military is not a democracy. It does not reflect our society. The military is a totalitarian regime by design. The whole premise, the whole concept of the military is that it is somewhat internally in its ranks anti-freedom. You follow orders. You do what you are told. You, you follow orders or people to die. Standards. Yes. You want me on that wall. <laughs> you need me on that wall. We set all kinds 
of totalitarian rules for the military designed to create an optimized fighting machine. Those rules include things such as the following. You may, you may not, have, not have hair longer than a certain length. Who are you to dictate how long their hair is? <laughs> They're fighting a war, I hear you saying. They must run a mile in under a certain amount of time, seven minutes. Who are you to say how fast they should run? Why not take away their cheeseburgers? She responds. Well, the point is... Take away their cheeseburgers. The debate of whether not to take away the military's cheeseburgers or to disallow <laughs> them from buying cigarettes on a military base is not the same as debating whether not you or I should have access to these things or easy access to these things. It's not the same. If it is in service, and these are points that must be accomplished... But to the philosophical point, if it is in service of making them a better, more efficient, more cost-effective fighting machine, then I have no problem banning the sale of tobacco on military bases. So you're in Congress right now. I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. You're in Congress right now. You vote to ban smoking tomorrow at military bases. I don't know. <laughs> Here's why. Um I am only rejecting at the starting point your philosophical point that you're galled and who are we to establish this principle and they should have freedoms and they're adults and they should be able to choose nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. They don't get to choose a lot of things. Mm -hmm. They don't get to choose to down a fifth of jack before running into battle. They don't get to have, well, they Yeah, uh, they do. Yeah, they do. (laughs) They don't get to have ready access. You're in that foxhole. (laughs) No one's making the libertarian individual choice argument that they should be able to have Various drugs, including marijuana and heroin, sold on the base. You know, there are reasons that we have rules for Mm -hmm. the military. And if you determine that this is also detrimental because of a a heightened health care cost for our military Mm -hmm. or because it's bad for their health and they perform less optimally as soldiers, those things have to be proven. Yes. But if you prove those things, then I have no problem taking away – by the way – just to clarify the debate, no one's saying you can't smoke if you're in the military. It's just a question of whether right. you can buy them on military bases. Right, and I think uh, one of the one of the mechanisms that they're also looking at to curb smoking is to roll back the five percent discount that military members get on tobacco. Can we products. agree that that's kind of absurd? Totally. The exi- the existence. We of don't need to encourage smoking. Right, subsidized cigarettes for yeah, the military. Agreed. No, agreed. I think I think there are ways to discourage smoking. And cessation programs and education programs, I'm all for that. Yeah, except the argument is, as see, for many, that cigarettes are actually a morale issue. Our friend Pete Hegseth, who um, mm. who served in the military, said that you know he was only he only smoked while on mm-hmm. in tour, not just in the military, but on tour and um, serving, yeah, actively in combat, yeah, and that uh, cigarette smoking can serve as sort of a morale boost, a communal thing, right? But if that's the case, by the way, then you can make an argument for subsidizing them. Well, sure. I mean, there's an art, people in AA. I mean, people who go into alcohol abuse programs are, in fact, encouraged to smoke often because it's a, a addictive substance that satisfies that addictive impulse that is not as deleterious as alcohol. But essentially, you and I are playing out what is going to play out in the military. You are Chuck Hagel, who is saying this is a great idea. I am Martin Dempsey, Joint Chiefs of Staff saying, I don't think this is the right time to introduce this kind of legislation and curb back our, our roll back our, our soldiers' freedom. We are having the debate that those two are going to have representing our defense sector. And then Congress is also going to have that debate as well. I just think the timing's really um, sucky. Okay, I'm not going to debate you on the timing side of this. I mean, I don't know. 
When's the right the time? timing is pre- well, the timing is preposterous. You know what? Figure out the VA system first. Let's get these guys quality health care, lower wait times, more resources for PTSD and suicide prevention, and then you can talk about banning cigarettes on military bases. Who's right? And maybe when we bring them home after fighting ISIS, maybe then we, we can have that conversation. Set aside the timing aspect of this. Debate. I am galled. <laughs> Who's right? Will or Essie? 888-900-3393. Jay Patriot on Twitter says, you're wrong on the smoking debate in the military thing, Will. But, yeah, but why? He's right. But, no, I need a why, honestly. Because call, I'm right. I will put you on these airwaves. Tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm right. <laughs> Let's hear from you when we come back on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Will Kane and S.E. Cup return? Jay Patriot on Twitter is telling me I'm wrong on the smoking ban, and I said, why? Why am I wrong for uh, potentially, it's not a smoking ban, but uh, stopping the sale of cigarettes on military basis? And he tells me this. He says, um, I smoked two-plus packs a day when I was in the Marine Corps, and I still achieve top physical fitness test results on a regular basis. Can we just first of all say two packs a day? That's just an admirable number of cigarettes. That's a lot of cigarettes. How many cigarettes is that, S.E.? Two, what is it, two and a half packs a day? Two plus, so he's smoking at least 40 cigarettes a day. Can you, 40 cigarettes a day. If you figure there's uh, 12 waking hours in a day, more than that, there's 14 waking hours in a day, that would be, how many cigarettes an hour? I don't know. <laughs> don't even ask. I don't know. I don't know, but it Come would on. seem like a lot. In 10 minutes, are you going to know the answer to that question? I, I am, because Professor Strogatz is coming on to tell me why I'm actually better at math than I think, and I might, in fact, be, be good at math. He's you don't know. Smoking three cigarettes an hour if he's awake for fourteen hours, that roughly. Is so many cigarettes. That's a cigarette. Three cigarettes an hour. That means he's just smoking a cigarette every what? Twenty minutes. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jose is clapping for me too. <laughs> I got one. I got one. <laughs> Lisa on Twitter tells me soda has been proven to be bad for us. Will they ban the sale of soda? Right. What's next? Exactly. Lisa. Candy bars, chips, biscuits, and gravy. Hey, I said cheeseburgers. I'm telling you, look, it's the military. We're not talking about a free society here. We're talking about a intentionally totalitarian entity. But we've had this conversation. I'm galled. You're not. Therefore, I'm right. Always be galled. <laughs> ABG. Always be galled. That's the new. That's the new boiler room. Always be galled. I like it. Hey, I have a um a question for you. Where do you think? We're in the middle of the postseason. Where do you think the most baseball players were born if we're talking about the United States of America? What state? What state do you think more baseball players were born in than any other? I think my guess. What state produces the most baseball players? Immediately, I'm going to narrow it down to three, and that is either California, Texas, or Florida. Because of sheer population. New York, you would put in there, but I think it's... Uh, maybe New York is in there as well. A little less sports dedicated. I'm going to go with... Are you tapping the table? No. no not at all. Florida. Florida no. is my answer, Bob. Florida. Final answer. Florida is not in the top five. Wow. But you were on the right track. Okay. 
California has produced the most baseball players. This is from Ben Blatt and Slate, who looked at um, which states have produced the most athletes from various professional leagues. So starting with baseball, California has produced more baseball players than the next three states combined. The next three states wow. being really Texas, mm-hmm. your beloved Texas, mm-hmm. New York, mm-hmm. and Illinois. Illinois, yeah. And then the fifth is Pennsylvania. Interesting. Pennsylvania probably indexes high on football. I think of it as football. Football quarterbacks. It's because I'm it, old. It's like Dan Marino's from Pennsylvania. I think uh, all those 80s quarterbacks, Marino, Sims, I think they were all from. I could be wrong. Is it Pennsylvania up, where the Little League World Series is? Um, The Little League World Series. I don't know where the Little League World Series is. Oh, Jose, Jose says, says yes. yes. I yeah. know where the College World Series is. <clears throat> That's you? in Oklahoma. Omaha. Omaha. Okay. <laughs> Nebraska, that is. Omaha, right. College World Series, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, California, Texas. I'm not surprised by either of those. New York, you right. said, just population-wise. Right. And actually more come from New York City than outside in New York State. Right. What would you say are the least productive baseball-producing states? Hawaii, Vermont, and Rhode Island. Um, none like of those so are on there. You like how fast that was? Yeah, but none of those are in the top I know, but you got to give me credit for the certainty and quickness. That was quick and certain. <laughs> it's like a corollary of the always be galled. Always be certain. Always be quick. No. The least productive... This is... I'm surprised, because these are mostly like Heartland states, where I think of... I think of Heartland states as having like big sports programs in their high schools, and mm-hmm. you know, that's... That's what you do. Mm-hmm. But um, Idaho, Montana, North Dakota. Well, Probably just because they're popula- not populous. Small population states, right. Yeah. Um, and really, Wyoming and Alaska. Uh, really quickly, we have less than a minute. Marco in Baltimore, um, what do you say? Yeah, I think that uh, they ought to just go right ahead and ban it all, man. Ban the liquor, ban the beer, ban the diapers, ban the milk, ban Mark, the bread. Marco, did we hear from you earlier today? Shut down all the commentaries. Thanks, Marco. Are you saying Marco was Bill? From Baltimore is Mark from Maryland. Oh. Hey, on a serious (laughs) note, on a serious note, can I just tell you this on this whole banning? It's not dissimilar from my argument from um, the the don't ask, don't tell policy. If the military leaders decide, it's not, uh, the military is not designed to reflect the free society. It's only designed to protect it. And I will follow the lead of those in the know, the military leaders. So then you'll follow Martin Dempsey, who says this is a bad idea. I know, this is coming from Congress, yes. I'll follow Martin Dempsey. (laughs) Okay. All right. Can Nessie do math? Miracles when we come back. Seriously. (laughs) There's going to be a revival in the studio on Kane and Cut. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Will Kane S E Cup R Kane and Cup only on the Blaze Radio Network. And we should be doing reality. I just did some simple math. I think I got it right. $5,000 an episode. He's doing 12 this season. That's $20,000. That's $60,000. I mean, $60,000. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, Josh. <laughs> hey, I got to tell you something. Essie's husband is sitting in the other room, so and I looked at, at him, and he's slapping his knee because you could feel Essie walking the plank out there. Like, okay, okay, get it right, get it right. And then, oh, no. Five, five times four is 20, and it's times 12 is right. Okay, let's I got take, it. I got it. I got it. I got it. On that note, let's take a break on Katie. <laughs> that. Um, classic. That's not live. That wasn't live. That was one week ago. Essie doing live math, math on live radio, going from, what is it? The right answer was, I don't know. I don't know. I still, still don't, don't even know. know. <laughs> I still don't know. That was the moment when we realized, well, at least when I realized. When you realized. <laughs> I've always known. That math was challenging for you. I've never hidden this, this aspect. I'm not smart at all things. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what's funny about that statement. You and I listening, we both know what that statement meant. I'm just smart at most things. <laughs> I'm smart at I'm smart at certain things. Math is not one of them. But I've always had a I've I'm always, basically what you're saying is I'm smart enough to know I'm not smart at everything. That's no, like <laughs> I'm I'm honest. I know that I'm smart at some things. I am not smart at math. No, I that's put, that's putting it nicely. I'm bad at math. I'm bad at math, especially for how smart I am. Was that a post-yogurt burp, what you just did? Is that what that was? You just post-yogurt burped in the middle of your statement. I just ate my second breakfast. It was nice enough this time not to eat yogurt in your ear while you're listening, but you just heard the post-yogurt burp. Well, I'm eight months pregnant. I can't always, I can't run my life by this radio show. I'm not saying I'm smart. I'm just... I'm sorry. I'm real smart. <laughs> Here's the problem. I'm a smart person. Undeniably. <laughs> Demonstrably, I'm smart. I'm full on yogurt, too. I cannot, I cannot do math. And for a really long time, I've not been able to do math. And it's made me hate math, which is so weird when you think about why would you hate math? I hate it. Because I'm terrible at it. Well, guess what? I read this article in, in um, The Atlantic this week. Listen to this headline. It was like screaming out to Essie Cup. The headline is, teaching math to people who think they hate it. Obviously, I read this. I read this with great interest. And I found out there was a professor of applied mathematics. Guess where? My alma mater, Cornell University. It was like I heard angels singing as I was read this, okay. as I was reading this, who is teaching an introductory math course for non-math majors at Cornell, my alma mater. Oh my God! You say it twice. <laughs> that's a humble brag. That's not even a humble brag. for people who think they hate math. I thought I have to talk to this gentleman. I have to talk to this wizard <laughs> who's going to get me to like math and maybe even get me to a point where I'm good at math. So I'm bringing him on the show to talk to me about how I can get better at math and stop hating it. Professor Steven Strogatz from Cornell University, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Essie. Um, sorry to hear you hate my subject. No, I know. I feel terrible. But can listen to my theory for why I think I hate it and why I think I'm bad at it, okay? And then you can tell me. Okay. Here's my theory. So I grew up um, moving every couple of years. And I think that when it comes to math, the way it's taught 
is really important. It might be easier to jump in to an English lit class or a history class in a different school much more easily than you can jump into in the middle of the year a math class, especially at that formative age. And so I was always picking up math at a different time from a different teacher. It was taught a different way, and I just couldn't sync up. Can, am I hearing this right just so I can translate this for myself? It's not your fault. It's definitely not my fault. Professor Strogatz, what do you think? <laughs> well, um, what you describe is a pretty common experience that, uh, you know, a lot of people who do move around have that problem because yeah. the the courses are set up differently in different school districts or different states. And the other thing is that there's this kind of unforgiving quality of math that it's very cumulative. So what you're supposed to yes. learn now depends on what you were supposed to learn last year or last term. And if you missed any of that, it's almost like you're dead. And it's it's very sort of absolutist, right? I mean, it's less interpretive, you would say, than sociology or, or literature. Right, wrong, or clear. Well, in, uh, yeah, some parts of it are. Certainly, I mean, we do have the reputation for being very black and white, that there's a right answer and a wrong answer. But there is room for creativity and in, in terms of mm. how do you get there, right? So, I mean, the methods I like creativity. that you use... Right. Yeah, exactly. I was. That's what I was going for there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Professor, you said something interesting real quick on the cumulative point. This is Will Kane, by the way. I find that fascinating yes, to this extent. Malcolm Gladwell in Outliers talked about when kids are really young, six, seven years old, the ones that are um, born earlier in the year often are physically bigger, even though they're in the same batch of kids, essentially competing for spots on a team. And because mm-hmm. they're physically bigger, they get on the team. And then it starts compounding. They get better teaching. They get better coaching. They get better competition. And it all builds upon itself from that one entry point, and they end up better, although they might not have necessarily been the better athlete. You're talking about math being the same thing, compounding. So immediately when I heard you saying that, it's like, we got to get this right really early because if Hmm. it compounds like that, we got to start early. Yeah, it's really interesting, Will. That point, uh, you know, that Gladwell talks about the January effect with the hockey players. Exactly. Um, Yeah, that – there is something like that with math in that, and, and actually with pretty much anything that people do, that if you're good at it at first or you're told you're good at it as a kid, you might start doing it for fun because people pat you on the head and say how good you are. And it could be playing the violin or it could be playing soccer or whatever. And, uh, of course, when you play it more, mm. then you're practicing and you get better and then more people say this and it definitely becomes a virtuous circle. So. Yeah, I think you, you raise a good point there. So you, you, you ask your students in this class um, to provide a mathematical biography, and that's essentially what I just did. I told you sort of my experience growing up with math. What, what, what's revealed in these unpleasant experiences with math from your students? Yeah, well, we, we see a few things. I should make clear there are some students who have pretty happy biographies and are just taking the what? course because they, they, <laughs> they want to explore it. <laughs> you know, it's called math explorations. But... On the whole, maybe this is a revealing statistic, that the course is um, part of the math and quantitative reasoning requirement that Cornell has, which is like the math version of the swim test. Yeah. You know, you're not allowed to graduate without it. Right. So um, more than half my class are seniors. Hmm. So they've been putting this off as long as possible. And so those, yes. are, those people are you. Those are the people who hated it, yes. have to take it to graduate, and they're dreading it. And so I asked them in these math autobiographies, you know, tell me about your other classes before this. And I also had them write words on the board. Uh, what word comes to mind when you think of math? People wrote stuff like sick <laughs> or 
<laughs> uh, boring, waste of time, irrelevant. Wow. So, you know, I wanted to know who am I who am I working with here? So why do I have to know? That's a great point because I, I sort of justify my um, intolerance for math and inability to do it by saying, well, I have yet to have a need to perform advanced calculus in my daily life. Why, why is math relevant for me? Uh, that's a great point because there's the big lie that we do try to tell students that this is relevant. Like something like calculus, look, any, any sensible person knows You've lived a perfectly nice life without using calculus. Yes. Uh, yeah, okay, if you're an engineer or a scientist or a high-tech person, you're going to need it. And right. so if you don't learn that stuff, you will cut yourself off from these interesting professions. But, but the lie is to tell people that, you know, you need geometry so that you can reason carefully and learn rigorous proof, et cetera, and, and that's why we're teaching you geometry. It's kind of really a fake argument, and mm. I think kids can see through that. Yeah. Because the real argument I like to give is um, we're trying to make your life richer and more beautiful and more interesting. Just like a kid never says, why do I have to learn music? Mm. You, no one would think, I mean, music is useless too, but music is beautiful and right. music makes people happier. And the same thing with art and, and literature. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't really need to have read Of Mice and Men, but if you have read it, you know, it's a powerful story, and it might give you some lessons that you could use in the rest of your well, life. And that's or why, maybe you just got pleasure reading it. And that's why the, the curriculum you're teaching is called Discovering the Art of Mathematics. Is this, is this an attempt to, to take sort of a humanities approach to, to math, yeah. something that I would, you know, as a layperson, put in the sciences category and therefore be absolutely petrified of? Well, yes, it absolutely is. And so, for instance, we recently did a series of exercises that I think would appeal to your philosophical side. Oh, excellent. Philosophy is always (laughs) considered part of the humanities. Right. And we we talked about um, doubt and reasoning and certainty and truth. Mm. And questions of truth and doubt, you know, are big in politics and in every subject, but especially in philosophy. How do we know what we know? How are we certain of anything? And uh, students were eating that up. Actually, there was one, if I could mm. venture into the political just for a minute. Sure. I, one of the questions that I put up, I mean, I frequently have them sit at tables. They sit at tables of four and they talk to each other. I don't lecture. Mm. There's no lecturing in this class. They, they work with each other, and then they all talk about what they've come up with. And so the question to stimulate them was, um, give an example of a myth or, that was widely believed by a community you know, as fact at one time, but that turned out to be dangerous or deplorable or damaging in some way. Uh-huh. Okay, so one table, you know, I mean, everybody writes the Holocaust and sure. stuff like that, but, but then one table, in addition, wrote communism. Mm. And another table, <clears throat> seeing that first table, wrote capitalism and the American dream. Mm. And so the first table then was asked to defend itself. Why did you say mm-hmm. communism? Mm-hmm. And, and they said, actually, we didn't mean communism as a system. We meant um, like the McCarthy era, you know, witch hunt. Oh, uh-huh. But then the other table was asked, well, why do you say American dream is a myth? Mm-hmm. And so then they went on a whole long, you know, you could imagine <laughs> yeah. that, were, <laughs> that so- were made. Uh, anyway, so, go ahead. The, the mm. point the point of this was that to, uh, you know it gives them a chance to to think about the relevance of of doubt 
and myth and certainty in a much broader context than just math. Really I know cool. exactly what you're talking about now. I need to warn you, first of all, Professor, that this t- segment has been teased, that you are going to make SE Cup not only like but good at math in about a two-minute span. So you should be in the back <laughs> of your mind preparing for that through my next little diatribe. But I, I think I disagree with one thing you said, that it's not wrong to teach children um, that math is relevant. I mean, I, you know, I, I've started a couple of businesses, entrepreneurship, that, 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 that accounting is the language of business. You know, even if you're not going to be the accountant in the business, the CFO, you need to know accounting because it's the language of business. Math is the language of logic. It's the language of so many things that we do outside the realm of math. That's one little point I'd love to make. And the other about your – I think you're saying this. Uh, talk, I hear you talking about your uh, small groups, your tables of four, and the debate orientation of, of math. math. My son goes to a charter school. I'm very evangelical about it. And they're, re, they're reimagining how you uh, understand math. And the theory is this. It used to be I, we, you. The teacher stands up the front, gives you the rules of math. You learn it as a group, and then you repeat it as an individual. It's memorization-based. And now the theory is uh, you, we, I. You go figure out the problem on your own, share it with your group, debate it, and then it goes to a, 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 an all-classroom acceptance or rejection of the premise. In other words, it's premise-based as opposed to memorization-based. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, Will. I, I did overstate that earlier, and I'm glad you caught me on that. I, I mean, it maybe didn't come out right. I certainly – look, I do applied math, so I'm the first one to believe math is applicable to the right. real world, Right. and it absolutely is. You're, you're right about that with accounting. It's just – what I tried to say, but it came out a bit clumsy, was that for kids who aren't interested in it, the argument that this will be useful to you later on – it doesn't persuade them. No, you. and it's starting them off with a lie. And now I think my teachers are lying to me. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not a lie for every kid. I mean, as right. Bill says, it, it is relevant. If you don't know, if you don't have number sense, you're going to be in trouble. People will take advantage of you. People can, can trick you with statistics or you'll get fooled in business. Mm-hmm. So you've got to know that. But, but I'm just saying that, like, when a kid says, why do I need to know the quadratic formula? Okay, now we're not talking about accounting. We're right. talking about that thing you memorized in algebra class. Right. That is I don't a remember that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a tough sell in terms of you're going to need it in your everyday life. The argument, though, is, you know, this is one of the great triumphs of humanity. Like, why do you need to know Beethoven's Fifth Symphony? Mm-hmm. Or why do you need to know Einstein's theory of relativity? Mm-hmm. Th- this was a breakthrough in humanity's understanding of something. Mm-hmm. And so I would like to approach, say, the quadratic formula with, with the historical you know, side of it, which turns out to be very interesting. I'm not going to give you a whole big lecture on it. But well, hold on one second. Turns, we have to take okay, a break, but can you there. stick around? Can you stick around I'm for another here. segment? Sure, happy to. You got a two-minute commercial break to figure out how you're going to perform a miracle. That's yeah, and, and, and make, me, make me good at math in two minutes. Okay, we'll come okay. back. Thanks. Stick around with us. We'll come back with the professor after this break. You're listening to Kane and Cobb on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back. We're joined by Cornell professor Stephen Strogatz. Cornell, my alma mater. I'll say again. Um, I'm really bad at math, and I don't like it. Professor Strogatz is here. He he is the math whisperer. He exists. His class at Cornell exists for people like me. So let me ask you a couple questions, Professor Strogatz, about 
like some math myths, if you will. Let me ask okay. you. Let me start here. If I'm good at music, does that mean I'm I'm also probably I've got a capacity for math because I've heard that. I'm not sure. Um, I don't. I don't know if it's predictive or not. It's certainly true that a sensitivity to pattern would help in both. Interesting. But I, hmm. I know. I know good musicians who can't stand math, and I know some math people who are wonderful musicians. I mean, it's confusing okay. the relationship. Can anyone be really good at math, or is there a capacity, a right brain, left brain thing? Like some people are just not going to be good at it, or can anyone be good? Mm. I think. Everyone can be much better than they are, but I do think there are people with exceptional talent. Hmm. Is there math that I'm definitely incapable of doing? Not now, but like if if I took a class, is there math I'm incapable of doing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll answer that. One. <laughs> you don't have to spare my feelings here. Okay, so there's math that I'm never going to be able I to do. I don't know you well enough. I I don't want to say yes. I mean, I don't. That's so what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> I took a, um, to satisfy that math requirement at Cornell, I took a statistics class thinking, well, I'm good at politics. I've, you know, I've dealt with statistics. This is probably going to be an approachable kind of math. Boy, was I wrong. Statistics is really hard, right? Well, the way it's often taught. I mean, not for you. <laughs> theoretical. Yeah, I don't think you would say that, actually. If you looked at certain books, I could recommend some that you mm. might like. Um, there's one out right now called How Not to Be Wrong, and it uses a lot of statistical reasoning, but hardly any equations. So hmm. you will like it. I mean, it's a lot of real-world interesting examples, um, some of which are amazing. I mean, really good stories. I would recommend that one. It just seems like this in the end, hard for me. that's the lesson. That's what we're relearning about math. And there is this movement out there that I've read about, a lot like what the professor is suggesting, is that math doesn't need to be based on memorization. It has been taught based upon memorization of equations and concepts and rules, and those seem abstract and removed from relevancy, and it's completely dependent upon you memorizing these things. And math can be much more, I don't know, Professor. Creative. Yeah, yeah creative. I mean, let me give you, I, I, while we're mentioning this book, How Not to Be Wrong, um, this story I think will grab you. It, it has to do with something that happened during World War II, and it uses statistics. It was... It was um, the bombers were coming back from their runs over Germany, you know, riddled with bullet holes. Mm -hmm. And the question that the Air Force had for their statisticians was, which parts of the plane should we be reinforcing with extra armor? Mm -hmm. You know, because mm -hmm. that's going to be important for our, our boys flying these missions if yeah. they're not getting shot down. So um, the first thought was, you look at where all the bullet holes are. In, are they in the fuselage? Are they in the tail? Mm -hmm. Where are they? And then the place with the most bullet holes, that's where you're going to put the armor. That turns out to be exactly the wrong thinking. Hmm. Statistical thinking tells you that what you do is look at the places where the fewest bullet holes are, and that's where you need to put the armor. Ah. You see why? Because hmm. those are the planes that, that, you, that didn't come back. Right. Oh, interesting. Well, uh, look, listen, I, lo I love your approach to math. And if I, if I were still up in Ithaca, I would take your class... And maybe I'll audit your class, um, you know, if that's if that's something I could do. I, I love what you're doing, and I really Thanks, thank Professor. you for joining us yeah, today. Thank you. Well, thank you. You're welcome to come. I mean, next time you're in town in Ithaca, come. We got to run, Professor. Awesome. Part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network.
Kane and Cup. I thought that was fascinating. Hearing a math professor's new approach to math, mm-hmm. a math that I could even get interested in, like the way he was describing that those classes and those situations, I would want to take that class. Uh, two things. One, I don't think he made this afflicted patient necessarily walk. No, but look. In the two minutes. But no, but what he told me was maybe I don't actually hate math. I hate the way I've been taught math. And maybe I have a capacity for being better at math than I think I do. I think your second point is definitely interesting, and that's important. And it sounds like that's what he is he's out to, uh, to evangelize. To evangelize is that, mm-hmm. And I, I made this point. I, I've, I've read articles about this because of uh, two things, Essie, because of what my son is learning and also because of Common Core. And somebody just tweeted me, I would have loved to hear what your guest had to say about Common Core math. The Common Core math is actually driving this concept away from memorization, from the um, I, we, you. Mm-hmm. It comes from the teacher as the authoritarian to the class to you memorization. From to the you, we, I. Go debate it on your mm-hmm. own. Figure mm-hmm. it out. Use your own creative ways of solving this problem. Mm-hmm. Share it with the class. Mm-hmm. And this is what my child does. I see this. They come up with different ways of solving problems. Mm-hmm. They show each other. Mm-hmm. They debate it. And some people's way of figuring out a problem helps others understand new ways. Um, so I actually like some of the concepts Common Core is incorporating. That's not the debate with Common Core. It's whether or not it should be a rigid you know, imposition upon yeah. everybody. Yeah. Well, if I'm ever back at my alma mater, Cornell University, I am going to run in uh, and see Professor Strogratz. If you're going to do this. And try and take his class, yeah. If you're going to do this uh, this Cornell thing. Yeah. Over and over. Yeah. You got to go all the way. All what? Right. Say, if I'm going to go back to my alma mater, Cornell, parentheses, Ivy League. Um, oh, I see. I mean, that's, what we're, that's what we're doing here. Well, in the context of my admitting that I'm terrible at math, I think I'm allowed to say, but by the way, I went to an Ivy League school, so I'm not completely stupid. <laughs> I have some redeeming redeeming intellect somewhere, somewhere. Just go ahead and fill in the parenthetical for everybody. All right. I'm proud of where I went to school. I loved where I went to school. Not because it was Ivy League, but because I loved it. <laughs> Not because it was Cornell University, which is one of the Ivies. It's because I loved it. Good. Anyway. That's good. That was good. See how you repeated it twice? I think that was good. <laughs> This has me thinking about something else, though. Um, so the cult, the cult of science. Mm-hmm. I actually loved science growing up. Um, I had like a little microscope set, and then later I had a telescope set. I loved um, geology. I collected rocks. I had a rock tumbler. I took science in college. I loved it. I always had to stop when I got to the math part. Mm-hmm. Like eventually I would take an astronomy class, and eventually math would come in, and so I'd have to stop. I loved science. Today's science evangelists are making me hate science, which I don't want to do. I love science. I'm not anti-science. I believe I'm a rational person. But they are making me hate the cult that has become today's science evangelists. There are, there are a number of topics, right now at least, on which you cannot disagree. You can't even ask a question if you want to be accepted by the class of science intellectuals. Which by itself, that statement alone is anti-science. Is and anti-science. I, I mean, the science I grew up with was a questioning, skeptical science. You have a hypothesis. You conduct an experiment to prove it true. You don't believe in true before the results of the experiment come back. Well, let me just say this to you. Your math professor at your Ivy League, Cornell University, Cornell University, parentheses, Ivy League 
University. Just in the last 10 minutes of our program said he used a teaching technique in his math classes where he asked them to break up into small groups and come up with a premise that was widely accepted by everyone and damaging to, potentially damaging to a civilization. That in and of itself would be um, – that would be unacceptable. Anathema, yeah. Anathema to modern science, where yes. you do not question premises. We've talked about this before. I sat across from Bill Nye on CNN, on Crossfire, and said, if I have some questions about the evidence of climate change, he, he said to me, then I am anti-science. Right. I'm not even allowed to have questions about it. That teaching, tech tool, techno, that teaching technique would be heretical. 100% heretical. If someone in that classroom Blows had said, mind. climate change, we're going to challenge the premise of climate change, what would have happened then? No, you're, you're anti-science. You can't have questions even, which is, by the way, the bedrock of scientific inquiry. It's in the title, inquiry. So one of the examples I have this week, uh, you know, the cult of Neil deGrasse Tyson. Liberals love this guy. He's the new great science guy. We trots out this this quote over and over and over again, ascribes it to George W. Bush, and it's meant to sort of tear down the hokey conservative rube anti-science mythology. But actually, a number of people are starting to point out that the quote is misattributed. It's not it's not the correct quote. He's not using it in the right way. But Neil deGrasse Tyson and his adherents are so religious in their conviction uh, of science that they can't even admit that his quote is inaccurate. He won't even admit that his quote is inaccurate. And he was pressed on this. He was pressed by people um, both in writing and on Twitter. And he will not admit that he is using this quote in- incorrectly. How scientific is that? Well, I don't know. It's religion. It's religion. It's a religion. And I saw I saw some more evidence of it this week. Cory Gardner out in Colorado is running for Senate out there. They had a debate. And in one of these debates, the um, the moderators said, OK, yes or no question. Yes or no answers only. Yes or no answer. Is climate change man made? Oh, uh, no. I saw this as well. Did did that you getting that right? That's a story out of Colorado. Yeah. That it's happened Mark- in Kentucky as well with Mitch McConnell. A sports oh, radio did. guy said, do you believe in climate change? Yes or no? And he tried to give an answer. It's yes or no. It's yes or no question. This, exa- this is the new thing. This is the new thing. Don't, don't inject any nuance. Don't explain anything. You must say yes or no. Wow. And so Corey two states, Gardner. Two politicians. That's a litmus test. Corey right Gardner tried to say, well, here's what I think. No, yes or no. Well, it's a complicated question. Let me explain. Yes or no. Wow. Because what they want is to catch the Republicans saying no. That's it. No nuance. Don't explain it because that actually someone might believe you. Someone might hear that. We want to get you saying no. So they're cutting off the debate. How scientific is that? I found an apostate this week out of also Colorado. Governor John Hickenlooper is out saying, you know what? I think it was reckless for Colorado to legalize marijuana before the science is settled on whether or not it's dangerous. That is heresy. To these, and he's a Democrat. To these, these science evangelists, you're not allowed to say the science is unsettled on marijuana being dangerous. The science is settled. You will be bullied out of a conversation by a science evangelist about whether or not weed is dangerous for you. 
I came up with a list of things that you must, you cannot question if you want to be accepted by the science evangelist. Okay. We already talked about, one, climate change. That's the big one. Clearly. You can't even ask a question about it because it, it means you're anti-science. Right. Evolution, another big one, an obvious one. Yeah. Um, Bill Maher the to make those two only, connected, by the way. Yeah. It is the only right answer. It mm-hmm. is the only explanation for how life came to be. Mm-hmm. Evolution. I happen to believe in evolution, but I might be interested in asking some questions about some of the, I don't know, missing links. Mm-hmm. Another one, abortion. Life does not start at conception. Any science evangelist will tell you. Do they make that argument? Yes. Really? Not all of them, but yes. If you look up, um, if you Google, say, like, abortion, science, conception, science, the scientific community is pretty aggressive on suggesting, and, and the abortion community is very aggressive on the science is settled. Well, my, my experience in that has been that that question is largely avoided. When does life begin? It's well, either avoided or they, it's deemed irrelevant to the conversation. Because, in fact, the science is not settled. Right. Any cursory That's, research right. will show you the science is not settled. That's Clearly. why we have the debate. Clearly. Science is actually moving our understanding of that around, at least for some of us, not, not all of us. The newest one, the newest one that you cannot challenge, lest some talking head call you an alarmist, is Ebola is not scary. <laughs> I'm not allowed to be scared by Ebola because it makes me anti-science. The science is clear. Don't, you don't have to be scared of Ebola. That's the new, that's the new thing. Uh, yeah, it's the new thing. I am scared of Ebola. I am freaking out about Ebola. I don't think science, Won't you join me? You know I disagree with you on this. I don't think science has taken a position on your particular subjective emotions. It has said— They are. They're calling people out on television saying you if, you're scared, if you're scared of Ebola, you're, you, don't, you don't understand science. That's what I'm being told. I don't understand science because I'm a little nervous that the CDC— You and science need to go into a room and work this out because I feel like you're overreacting a little bit to some (laughs) of these. On your list, like you've you've, you've stretched on a couple. I think you and science need to have a coming together. I already told you. You I love science. These science evangelists are making me hate it. Because, I, I mean, the religious arrogance with which these people... I think you have a point here. They're like going. televangelists. The religious arrogance and absolutism and certainty and the shutting down of debate is so anti-science. It's the cult. So counterproductive. Right. It's the cult you're pointing to. It's not the concept of science. It's the cult around science that has yeah. suggested that it has taken these things as done, written, Settled. concluded. And therefore now time for religious faith in these things. Don't question it's it's so weird to have seen these arguments about evolution and abortion and climate change evolve over the, the past few decades to the point where now it's we can't even have the debate. It's over. Right. We used to at least indulge the debate. Right. And have it. Now they're so out of ideas for how to explain their point of view. It's shutting down the debate is their only idea. Yes or no. Yes or no. We're going to take a break. How about that? Yes. Yes. Yes or no. I'm galled. You were galled again. <laughs> Quick break before we turn this thing over to Chris Salcedo. Do you have one more quiz for me? Yeah, I can quiz you again. Got another quiz for me. We'll talk to you in just a few moments on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network.
You're listening to Kane and Cobb on the Blaze Radio Network. Sweet. Welcome back. You want to talk? <laughs> you go. Welcome back. Yeah. Now you can go. So we, we talked earlier about um, the states where most baseball players came from. Right. Let's do the same with football. Okay. I can it. quiz you on this. Where do you I think? Oh, you think so? Mm-hmm. All right. Where do you think most? Texas. That's not number one. Really? Really. Finish your question. Where do you think the most football NFL football players come from? Which states? Oh, I see. I, I didn't. Oh, <laughs> it's different now? It's different? It's a different question than you thought? <laughs> I know for sure the top three. Texas, Florida, and California on this one. Correct. So number one is California. Oh, I was going to tell you. Yeah. yeah. Number two is Texas, and number three is Florida. Then where do you think it goes? Pennsylvania. Incorrect. Really? Yeah. It's It's high, but it's not in the top... Six. Illinois? No. Louisiana? Louisiana is sixth. Hmm. Four is... Surprising. Ohio. Ohio is five. Oh. Four I was surprised by. Tennessee? No. Okay, what is it? Georgia. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's... that's Big football country. I should have, yeah. That's right. football country. So it goes California 1, Texas 2, Florida, Florida 3, Georgia 4. Ohio. And Ohio 5. Louisiana 6. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. That's where they breed football players. Yeah. Texas, Florida, and California are always going to be on those lists because of sheer population. And then, of course, Texas and Florida are football culture states. Makes sense. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. What are you looking there at you like that for? Well, I was just looking at this. You have Florida and Georgia together. I was just thinking about your new love of Florida-Georgia <laughs> line. I thought maybe you'd want to share your new appreciation for a bro country band called Florida-Georgia line. I mean, SOB, they won me over. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. That cheesy stick got me. Yep. I like Dirt. That song, Dirt. It's a good song. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not on board with Florida-Georgia line. You told me yesterday that I like sappy songs. And you know what? I thought about it after you accused me of that on the way home. I was you like, do. I do. But I like sappy, specific kind of sappy. If you appeal to my nostalgia, I'm mm-hmm. stranded up here in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. My roots are back home. Yeah. <laughs> I will listen to the cheesiest, like, that dirt song from Florida-Georgia line. Yeah. The dirt you grew up on. Yes, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, you miss it. Yeah, that no, that tugs Any at your heartstrings. Texas, George Strait's objectively not very good song about Texas. Yeah. Any, Doug Supernall, Red and Rio Grande. Mm. I'm with you. I'm all over that sap. I can go for a good sappy song. Jason Aldean's Flyover States, to me, is like patriot porn. I am, I'm a big fan of that song. <laughs> big fan. Flyover States, you know. I haven't heard that. Oh, it's one of the best. It's I, I wouldn't call it sappy. It's just it's emotionally really taps into my like pro America, pro patriot uh uh sort of ethos. It gets me. That's a good one. Um we asked earlier in the show what is the best book to movie translation. SE's gonna go see Gone Girl just a little later today. We're mm-hmm. wondering how it's gonna be. She's read the book. How is it gonna mm-hmm. You're going to like that. Been asking throughout the show, tons of recommendations on what they think the best book-to-movie translation is. Because, by the way, almost 90% of the time, the movie is such a terrible rip-off version of the book, right? Just, I mean, what can you do in two hours versus 300 pages? Yeah, and like I said, you're distracted by the fact that you've read the book. So you can't even really judge the movie accurately because all you're thinking about is, does it adhere to the book? Two more suggestions on Twitter. Mm -hmm. River Runs Through It by the book. From Norman McLean. Okay. And The Horse Whisperer. 
Yeah, okay. <laughs> I um I I heard one floor of the cuckoo's nest. That's a good one. That's huh? a really good one. And uh the natural. Yep. Great one. Yeah. Oh, the Robert, Robert Redford. Redford here. Yeah. 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 All right. It's been a fun Saturday morning. Thanks for joining us today. I will be with you next week. I won't be. Stick around for Chris Salcedo next. You're listening to Kane and Cobb. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.